This morning, what we wanted to do, what I want to do is continue in our sermon series, Religion Redefined, and we come now to, uh, as you're going to hear probably a lot throughout the sermon series, a well-known passage of scripture, salt and light. We've heard that before. It's so well-known that uh, Ronald Reagan, the former president of the United States, in his last, his farewell address to the nation, he actually talks about it. He compares America to a city on a hill, and whatever you think about that, um, we could talk about that later. But what I, what's important is to think about how impactful, how encouraging, how uplifting, how envisioning the, the words of Jesus are. That a poor carpenter in northwest Palestine talking to a small group of people was so moving and stirring that it echoed through history down to Ronald Reagan. I want to read a little bit of that uh, that farewell address, and I want you to maybe have your Sermon on the Mount ears on and listen to some of the themes. He says this, as he's concluding, he says, and that's about all I have to say tonight, except for one thing. The past few days, I've been at the upstairs window, and I've thought a little bit about the shining city upon a hill. The phrase comes from John Winthrop, who wrote it to describe the America he imagined. He imagined it was important because he was an early pilgrim, an early freedom man. He journeyed here on what would be called a little wooden boat. And like the other pilgrims, he was looking for a home that would be free. I've spoken of that shining city all my political life, but I don't know if I've ever quite communicated what I saw. And he goes on to explain a little bit about his vision for America. And he ends with this. And how stands that city on this winter night? More prosperous, more secure, and happier than it was eight years ago. And more than that, after 200 years, two centuries, she still stands strong and genuine on that granite ridge. And her glow has held steady no matter what storm. And she's still a beacon to all who, still a magnet for those who must have freedom for all the pilgrims from the lost places who are hurtling through the darkness towards home. And then he ends with congratulating his, I don't know, followers is the word. He says this, a final word to the men and women of the Reagan revolution, the men and women across America who for eight years did the work that brought America back. My friends, we did it. We weren't just making time, marking time. We were making a difference. We made the city stronger. We made the city freer. We left her in good hands. All in all, not bad, not bad at all. As I mentioned, regardless of what you think about America or Ronald Reagan's uh, speech there, we see a lot of imagery there from the Sermon on the Mount, and especially from our passage that we're going to talk about here in a few minutes. America certainly, I believe, is a great country. We've had great beautiful moments, but there's also been moments of great darkness, of great hurt, of great pain. And when Jesus calls his people to be a city on a hill, as we're going to read here in a few minutes, is he talking about America? Is he talking about a country, a nation, or is he talking about his people, his church? And if so, what does it mean to be a city on a hill? Let's talk about this morning. But before we do that, turn in your Bibles to the book of Matthew, chapter 5, verse 13 through 16. And let's read the next set of teachings of Jesus. He says this, You are the salt of the earth. 
If the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. What does something Jesus said 2,020-something years ago mean for us today? Well, to really understand that, we've got to understand what the original hearers would have understood and thought when they heard what Jesus said. Those people lived in a world. There was a culture. There was a context. And when Jesus says things, they make sense for those people. We understand this. This happens in our world all the time. We just don't think about it. Uh, in a couple of weeks, the Chicago Cubs are going to come to town and play baseball. Now, what if, there we go, go Cubs, go. I'm a Braves fan, but I, you know. Um, now, what if you were walking through the city and you're walking down the street and you hear somebody at a restaurant say, man, the Cubs are in town this weekend. I hate those guys. I hope we wipe them out. I hope we utterly destroy them. They're the worst. Now, you wouldn't think anything of it, right? Because you're a heathen Cardinals fan. So you would just be like, Oh, yeah, he's talking about the Cubs. Okay, I hate them too, yada, yada. But what if you did not know anything about sports? What if you had, you're like an alien or you were from another country that didn't have sports and you heard people talking about Cubs that you hate and that you want to destroy? Well, you might be a little terrified. You might be asking your friends, well, is there like an invasion of bears coming? Do we need to prep? Do I need to like board up my doors? The same thing now, when Jesus says words, when he's giving a sermon, there's a context, there's a world going on around these people, and they could pick up on things because of where they were at. So what we have to do is kind of step back and try to get into their shoes a little bit to understand what Jesus is talking about. It's really important because I think most of us, we're trained to think, well, we're smarter than the past. Like those people were just dumber. We're much smarter. Our world's much more harder, much more complicated, much more stuff going on. But the world that these original hearers inhabited was much like our own, especially for those of you who are people of God. They were asking questions like, what does it mean to be the people of God in this country? It's a challenge. How do we live faithfully? Those are questions people are still asking now. And there was one group of People, they were called the Essenes. They were a sect of, of believers, of Jewish people who believed that the best way to be a Jew is to run away. That this whole country and people and culture and church and the leaders, they're all so corrupt. The best thing we can do for ourselves is go hide out in caves right by the salty Red Sea, hint, or Dead Sea, sorry, hint, hint. Uh, let's live in these caves and let's just keep to ourselves and we'll be the true faithful one. They even called themselves sons of light. That was one of their monikers for themselves. And they called the other people the sons of darkness. Now think about that for a moment. That doesn't really sound that different when I get on Twitter or when I watch the local news. That doesn't sound much different. Name calling, we're doing it right, they're doing it wrong. But more than that, in some ways, it kind of sounds appealing. There are times when I know I want to, you know, pack up the Kia Sorento and 
go buy a farm somewhere and I'm not a good, I probably would not be a good farmer. So I don't know what I would do, but at least we would be away from all the craziness of this world. As a parent, sometimes I'm tempted. It just seems hard. School seems hard. Culture seems hard. The world seems like it's just a different place than when I was a kid. I, I want to get my kids and just kind of run away. It's what these people were wrestling with. But what Jesus does is he's going to teach them what it's going to be like to be the Beatitudes people. Remember, Matt just did a beautiful sermon about the Beatitudes, the uns, the people God is blessing. I encourage you to go back. I know I was stirred as I got to hear that about how, man, God can, what he did in that little old town of Galilee, he could do that here in Afton through these people. So what's it going to look like for those Beatitude people not to, should they just run away and hide and be a community that does their own thing? Well, he's going to talk about something different. He's going to call them to something uniquely Jesus. And to do that, he gives them a little triad of teaching. He gives them three little descriptors of what the Beatitudes people will be like in the world. He talks about salt, light, and deeds. Let's take a look at that first one. When those people would have heard salt, what would they have thought? Look at verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. Now, Side note, before we get to salt, that word you, that is plural, right? For all you grammar people in here, you can say you and talk about one person, or you can say you and talk about a group. And sometimes when you're reading it, it gets a little confusing. Now, uh, those of us Southerners, we have a more refined and effective way of communicating this that you uh, Midwesterners don't have. We say y'all, right? (laughs) So, you know, not to maybe give Jesus some speaking tips here, but he could have said, y'all are the salt of the earth. But that's important. He's not talking to individuals. We live in a very individualistic community world. We think the way to make a difference is be an individual. And, but what Jesus is saying is that, no, you, the group, you, the people of God, are the salt of the earth. Now, when they would have heard salt, they would have probably thought about all the different ways salt is used in the Old Testament. That's an interesting word to say, right? You're salt. Well, salt had a lot of different things. It was used as a symbol of purity. It was used in some of their sacrifices in the Old Testament. It was actually, there was a covenant called a salt covenant. So there's a lot of possibilities. What, what's G, what, what was he calling them to? Were they supposed to be a pure community? Were they supposed to be a community that was sprinkled in an offering? It could be really confusing. Luckily, we have the second part of the verse, which I think clarifies what he means when he says this. You are the salt of the earth, comma, but if salt loses its saltiness, what can make it salty again? Okay, so now we're getting in me. Okay, what does he mean by salt? Well, how do we, saltiness. It's a strange translation. I looked it up this week. I still can't figure out why they translated it this way. But that word for saltiness is comes from the Greek word. I'm going to read it to you, and maybe you can put two and two together. The Greek word is moreon, which we get the word moron. That's what Jesus, that's the word. It's basically the word moron. To become foolish is what Jesus is saying. Now, what's he saying? I don't think he's saying that, hey, let's get these morons out of here, right? If 
You're salt of the earth. If you become a moron, throw them out and trample them under your feet. You know, get these horrible people out of here. I don't think that's what he's saying. When the Bible talks about foolishness, the overarching motif and theme is not intellectual, not being able to put the pieces together. You can be really intelligent and be foolish. When he says foolishness, he means living according to the world. So if that's the, if that's what he means by salt, what's he getting at? He's saying when you're salt, you're distinctive. You're different. But if you live foolishly, if you live just like all the other communities around you, then you become common. You become like the sand that we walk on, right? Back in that day, just sand everywhere. When you lose that distinctive, when you start to chase after the things, the People in first century Palestine were chasing after power, money, some of the same things we chase after. You lose that distinctiveness. Now pause for a second. Little Bible scholars here. Did Jesus before this mention a group of people who were distinct from the world? A group of people that Jesus was blessing and congratulating and saying that they were different the uns, right? If you were here last week, <laughs> the Beatitudes, the Beatitudes. That's a distinctive people in this world. And when you stop being distinctive, you lose that power. You lose that distinctiveness. See, pressures were pressing into this little group of believers. It was all around them. Just like it's all around us. Secondly, Jesus says, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. So they're to be a distinctive people. That's what he means by salt. And they're to be, what's he mean when he says light? He means illuminating. Light illuminates. Kurt talked about it this morning. And when he would have said that light, that this passage, people would have instantly thought about Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah chapter 2 is a prophecy about what it's going to be like when the Messiah comes. And this is what it says. And, and as I read this, I want you to turn on your Sermon on the Mount ears, open up your eyes, listen for these words. There's going to be a lot of Sermon on the Mount words. In the last days, the mountain, Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and the nations will stream to it. Many people will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his way so that we may walk in his paths. He will lay, he, the law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. This is some of my favorite passages of Scripture right here. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. What is Isaiah predicting? He's predicting there will be a time when the temple of God will be up on a mountain. And it will be shining so bright and so glorious and it will be so breathtaking and beautiful that the nations will be drawn to it. And they'll go up that mountain and they'll learn the ways of the Lord. 
Come, let us walk in the light of the Lord, it says. Think of those words. Mountain, right? He went up on the mountain and taught them, saying, teaching. This is what Jesus is doing. He's teaching. Peacemaking. Light. A lot of connections of the Sermon on the Mount. Now what Isaiah, I don't know, could see, couldn't see, what the people were, were going to learn later on is that when Jesus is talking about the city on the hill, the new temple, it was going to be them. <laughs> That's what was really uh, scandalous about Jesus' teaching, was that he wasn't talking about the temple, he was talking about people. That the people would be the light of the world. So a distinctive salt, illuminating light that goes out. And then he gives a final thing. He says, he talks about deeds. He doesn't just say, hey, you are salt, you are light. That could maybe lead to some kind of easy believism, right? Well, hey, I'm salt and light. It's a pretty good deal. And I'm going to go hang out and that's it. But no, he calls them to something. There's an action statement here at the end. In verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. It's interesting. Sermon on the Mount starts with the thing about good deeds right here. Go do them. End of the Sermon on the Mount, which we'll talk about here in a little bit. It's another call to go and do good deeds. Why? Because, as those people would have heard, what makes them distinctive? What makes them light? It's Jesus' work through them. And it shines out when they do the deeds. They are, to, they are salt and light, and they are to do good deeds. No one hides the light. That doesn't make sense. It shines out. What might some of those deeds have been like? Well, if they were thinking about Isaiah chapter 2, we get that verse 4. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will take up, not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. That sounds almost, right? That sounds unbelievable if we look at our world right now. And it was just as unbelievable back then to think that there'd be no more war. That Countries won't even train for it anymore. Anymore, That's where the world is headed right now. It might not feel like it is, but that's the ultimate destination of the world. And Jesus is calling those people to participate in that, to do peacemaking, right? To hunger and thirst for righteousness. That could also mean justice, to do those things, to get out, as he's going to say in his teachings, to feed the hungry, take care of the sick. What Jesus is saying here in the end to these people, the kind of climax of it, is that when you do these things with joy and these deeds take place, what happens is that it draws men and women. It will draw the nations to this city on a hill. It will draw them into a community of Jesus followers who are practicing things like peacemaking, compassion, So what does that mean for us? I think it means three things. I think the context might be different, but Jesus is still calling his people to be salt and light. 
And he's still calling them to good deeds. And another way to think about that is I think we, he's calling us, he's letting us know that we are a distinctive community, an illuminating community, and we are to be an obedient community. How do we remain distinctive in 2022? What does it mean to be salt, to be distinctive? I, I don't know if you pay attention to uh, anything, but um, that's probably the biggest challenge for Christians, for the people of God, is to be distinctive. What should we focus on? In what ways can we be distinctive? Well, the Beatitudes is a good start. Those are a distinctive group of people. Another place to start is maybe the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. Think about your world. Think about your school, your job, your home, your relatives, whatever. Let me list a couple of things Jesus is calling us to in the Sermon on the Mount. Radical forgiveness. Would that make you distinctive if you were a person of radical forgiveness? Renouncing reciprocal violence, right? If someone smacks you on the cheek, you turn the other one. If someone wrongs you and you don't seek to get vengeance upon them, would that make you look like a different person in our culture that offers zero forgiveness, that will find your tweets from 30 years ago and continue? Or probably the biggest one, have you looked out on Twitter, in the world, do you see a lot of people loving their enemies out there in the world today? I don't. <laughs> if you know them, please let me know, because I would love to meet them. There's not a lot of love of enemies out in the world. And these are the kind of things that have made Christians distinctive for thousands of years. In America, we, we, we're, we're tempted to be distinctive in different ways too, Right? Should we, you know, storm the Capitol and become Christian nationalists? Should we move out to Montana and start some kind of community out there? Should we fight culture wars and try to hold on to influence and power? Should we not say anything because we don't want to offend anyone? What does it mean to be distinctive? Well, there's a ton of different ways we can be distinctive. But I think one big way to be distinctive right now in America is politics. Now, the fact that I even said that word, I can see it on some of your faces. You're like, oh my gosh, please be careful here, right? But it's impossible not to be political <laughs> because politics has to do with what? Relationships, how we treat one another, what we expect from other people. So it's impossible unless you live on an island somewhere by yourself uh, or you live in a community, but not with other people, <laughs> just by yourself somewhere. You're a... As, uh, Aristotle would say, a political animal. So we have to engage in them, whether we really want to or not. But we do it in a distinctive way. Here's a few ways we can be distinctive. We could come along people and say, listen, I'm with you. Like, I want to take care of poor people. I want to make sure single moms are taken care of. I want to make sure the unborn are taken care of. I want to make sure the poor and most vulnerable around us are taken care of, but I don't know if that's the best way to do it. Let me show you the ways God's people have done these things in the past. Let me show you, not by talking about it, well, getting ahead of myself, but actually doing it. Here's another way we can do it. Uh, we're not going to give ourselves as Christians over to 
a character assassination, right? We're not going to get on Twitter and Facebook and malign politicians from the party that we don't agree with. We're not going to finger point. I didn't get to mention this in the first service. I'm going to mention it now. 1995, Southern Baptist Convention released a statement on slavery and the role that the Southern Baptist Convention played in that. It was a beautiful moment. You can go look it up. New York Times wrote about it. LA Times. Like, everyone wrote about this. The biggest denomination in America confessing, being distinctive, not pointing fingers, saying, you know what? We were complicit in this. It's horrible. It's awful. We ask for forgiveness from our brothers and sisters that we've harmed. That was a distinctive move. Now, what's happened since then, unfortunately, has been more of the world. I don't know if you keep up with it, but it's more finger pointing, right? Don't teach that. They shouldn't be doing this. I can't believe they're doing that. More finger. We don't do that as Christians. We're not going to be, we're going to lead the way. We're going to repent where we need to repent. We're going to shine the light even in our own dark brokenness. So we're not going to slander. We're not going to get on uh, Facebook and do these things. And we're not going to glorify politicians when they behave in ways contrary to the Sermon on the Mount or the Beatitudes. Just that's what Christians do. Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. When someone isn't meek, we shouldn't get on and say, well, I'm glad they're not meek. Now, I'm um, not like a super pastor. I try to invite people into conversation, but I think here it's worth pressing in a little bit. If we want to remain politically distinctive for Jesus, right? We want to be distinctive in this area, distinct, different. The reality is you cannot listen to four hours of political podcast and cable news, whatever side you're on, you can't give yourself to that four or five hours a day and think that you can remain distinctively political for Jesus. You can't do it. If you think leaders can't be meek when Jesus literally destroyed Satan and overthrew all the evil kingdoms of the world by being meek, then we're being deceived. If we think that the means justify the end politically, what are we doing? We're becoming foolish. If we think, well, we can't win this election unless we act like all the other politicians do, we're becoming foolish. We're becoming just like the other communities of the world. Here's another way we can be distinctive. What if we just made it our goal to be known as the most loving and serving people in America. Like, what if every Christian just woke up and said, my task, this church's task, is to be the most loving and serving people wherever God has placed us? Um, That's probably not the two words that come to most people's minds when you bring up the church in America, big C, all of us, right? Some of that slander is unwarranted, right? Some of it's not fair. A lot of it is fair. What's happened? We've been, church, people, Christians have been tempted, especially over the past 50 years, to think that we can get influence and power 
not by loving service, but by winning elections and doing things. The way to remain distinctive is to be distinctive, to love and serve even our enemies. How do we become an illuminating community? How, what, what does an illuminating community look like in 2022? Well, I, to shorten it a little bit, uh, to be that place in Isaiah 2, to be a people that are welcoming other people in where they can experience the ways and grace and love of God. Now, to do that, people have to what? They have to see it with their eyes. They have to see what grace looks like extended to another person. They have to see what praying for your enemies looks like. They have to see a people who are committed to love above politics and power. People who really believe that that's more transformative than anything else. They have to see that. And here's the good news. This is good news. I think your neighbors in your cubicle, the students you go to school with, the people in your neighborhood want to see that. Most people I talk to, non-Christians, Christians, they're tired. <laughs> they're tired of the way the world is. They're tired of all the hate, the vitriol spewed out at every moment. They're tired of just all of that. They're tired of politicians saying one thing and doing another. Here's another thing. They're tired of the church saying one thing and doing another. They're just tired, and they really want to see this. And the good news is that we are that light. But the challenge is that doesn't take place in this room. It can, of course, of course it can. Of course we can be loving and welcoming people in. But the reality is, friends, we live in a different time. People aren't just going to come into rooftop that kind of cultural, well, you know, you go to church on Sundays, what you do, that, those times are long gone. So what's it mean? we got to take the light out there. If our only hope is in here, that's putting a light under a bucket. we got to be out there. To be illuminating, we got to go out to where the darkness is. Not saying there's no darkness, not saying there's no brokenness in here. But we got to go out there. So we got to ask ourselves, where are those places in your life, in your sphere of influence that need to be illuminated? One as a church, what parts of Afton can we as a church combine our resources, our time, talent, and treasure, and shine light on broken areas of Afton and St. Louis? You, where, where can you go into your neighborhood and shine light? Maybe it's your neighbor who's a recluse, who doesn't talk to anybody. Or maybe it's the neighbor that comes and talks to everybody and hangs out, but you notice maybe there's a couple of drinks that go a little too far every now and then. Maybe you're in school and it's the kid that you know gets picked on all the time and no one wants to talk to and is mean to. Where does the light need to shine? For the Murphys, it was in Burma. They were called to go to Myanmar and shine the light there. But for you, where is it? Finally, Jesus calls us to be an obedient community. We can talk about being salt. We can talk about being light. But that only happens when, we're, when we go out. We're obedient to what Jesus calls us to be. Obedience is a challenging word, right? 
Our culture does not like the word obedience. They do not want to be told that they got to obey. And the reality is none of us really enjoy that word. It's a, it's a hard word. But this, Jesus is, I don't know, crazy enough to believe that when he says to do something, that we should do it. As a father of a four-year-old and a six-year-old, that's pretty revolutionary to believe that people will do what you say to do. I'm just teasing. My kids are great. I love them. But at the end of the sermon, Jesus says this. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, everyone who hears my words and puts them into practice. In Ronald Reagan's farewell address, he, he, what? He thanked them. He thanked the Reagan revolutionaries for working for eight years to make America a better place. And if Ronald Reagan expects his people to do that, well, what do we expect King Jesus? We should go and do what he says. I end with this. I I know there's a temptation because I've been a Christian for I don't know how many years. Sometimes it's hard to come in and just you hear sermon after sermon after sermon after sermon after sermon. I think the challenge that Jesus puts forth to these people in the Sermon on the Mount and the challenge he's still putting us out today is this. Do what he says. If you follow Jesus, then you're salt and light. Do what he says to do. How do you do that? Lots of places. But here's my challenge for the next six months. I think we're doing Sermon on the Mount. I can't remember. Here's my challenge to you. Go home and pray. Wake up on Sunday morning and pray on Wednesday night, whatever. Pray during the week and say, Jesus, whatever comes down the pipe, in this Sermon on the Mount, my answer is yes. I'm going to put my yes on the table. If you call me to turn the other cheek, I'm going to turn the other cheek. I don't know what that means. It's going to be hard. I'm probably going to need pastors and a community of people to help me understand what that looks like. But my answer to you is yes. When you say pray for your enemies, I don't want to do that. But I'm going to do that. When you say go and pray, Jesus, I'm going to go and pray. When you say give, Jesus, I'm going to give. When you say fast, I'm going to fast. Let's let the light shine by being obedient to Jesus. Let me pray for us this morning. Would you bow your head with me? Lord, we come to you in this moment, Lord. Um, As I look upon um, these beautiful people that you've brought to us, Lord, I know that there's probably people here who are struggling, Lord. They're, they're trying to do it all in their effort. They're, they're working really hard. They're running around. They're doing all this stuff. And they need to hear from Jesus that you are the salt and light of the earth. That because of Jesus' sacrifice, that because of the call, that because of the Holy Spirit, you, you are that. It's just who you are. He doesn't say, do these things and you'll become. He says, you are. Lord, may those people rest in your call, your affirming call in their life. But Lord, there's some of us, and I feel more in this category, that I've been a Christian for so long. And maybe it's time for me to get up and do the deeds. 
I know I'm salt. I know I'm light. But I got to get out and I got to love my neighbor as myself. Lord, both those people, would you stir in their hearts? Maybe there's some people in here, they they don't know Jesus. They, they see this picture of the kingdom, and that sounds beautiful and amazing, but they have no idea what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Would you be with those people too? Would they know that, that there's hope and trust in Jesus, that if we turn to him as our king, he'll lead us and guide us?